We're going to talk about heaven tonight, and we're trying to get you in. That's our objective. And now you, you, maybe you're watching, and you're, you're at home or somewhere else, and you're, you're wondering what in the world is this guy going to talk about. I'm going to talk about heaven, but my objective is to see that you're sure that you're going, because the death rate here is 100%. We're not going to make it out of this alive, and you don't know when the end is coming. You just don't know. A pastor was talking about uh, uh, Sunday about what happened at the, at the tree, and, I, and I, I made the statement that the people that we've lost, Jerry's wife, uh, our daughter, I mean, the reality of it is the last thing they would want us to do is stop, just stop. Uh, they're cheering us on. They, they want us to do more if we can, and we want to, um, but it's, it's a gradual process, I have to tell you. I watched a video last night of somebody singing a song called You Are the Wind Beneath My Wings, and I just lost it, because I remember her singing that song on the Sunday she went off to college. So it's a process, it takes time. I got killed on the way to church. I was uh, going to do a Wednesday night service at South Park Baptist Church in Alvin on January the 18th, 1989. I've been there for three days at uh, Trinity Pines. Trinity Pines, a beautiful camp, one of the best I've ever seen, owned by the Union Baptist Association here in Houston. And I've been up there a bunch of times, maybe probably some of you have been up to Trinity Pines, and it's a lovely place. And... Um, the conference ended on a, on a Wednesday morning about 11.30. We, we ended it on early, early because we, the forecast was for ice. So we had a brunch instead of a lunch, and so we're all leaving about 11.30. I decided to even go home a different way because there were some twisty, turny roads coming off from Livingston over to the north shore of Lake Livingston. And so I decided to go on Texas 19 over to I-45. I figured if that, anything would be clear, that would be clearer. So I turned to the right, and I hadn't been out of the gate for 10 minutes, and I passed through Trinity, and I'm coming up on Riverside, if you know where that is, and this old bridge. And um, the bridge is still there. It is uh, not a functional bridge anymore. It was built uh, by the WPA to honor veterans of World War I. Of course, when they, didn't, when they built it, there wasn't a World War II, so it was just called the Great War. There were signs at both ends of it, I remember. And I'm driving across it. It should have always been a one-lane bridge. It is a one-lane bridge now. It's one way. You can drive on it, fish off of it. It's just for recreational use. There's a four-lane bridge right beside it now. But in those days, it was the only way to cross what was the Trinity River bed. That's the Trinity River went under that bridge uh, before they dammed it up and made uh, Lake Livingston. So I'm driving on it, and it's pretty long. At the end of it, you can't see it, but there's a steep embankment up. At least there was in those days. And so I'm on it. I've got sermons on the seat beside me. I'm on my way to do uh, uh, for the next few Sundays. I'm, uh, I'm focused. I can't wait to get back to church. I'm not even going home first. I'm going straight to church uh, because I'm not even sure how long it's going to take based on uh, the driving conditions. I'm almost off the bridge coming all uh, down uh, the opposite direction, down a steep embankment at a high rate of speed is the Texas Department of Corrections 18-wheeler driven by an inmate. Regular driver didn't show up that day and he volunteered. Couldn't 
couldn't drive a truck, but he volunteered. And so he's coming down that uh, embankment, obviously not familiar with that area either, way too fast. And he, he clips a car and runs that 18-wheeler over into my lane. I'm driving a very small uh, red car, Ford Escort. And he runs right over me. I mean, just runs over the top of me, crushes the car, and shoves it into the railing of the bridge. This is a picture of the car from the wrecking yard. So it's pretty bad. You could see the trajectory of the truck when it ran over the top of me. The roof has been removed and put back on at the wrecking yard so they could get me out of it. But um, I was killed instantly, which I think always brings up an interesting question. What am I doing here? And then I usually ask, what are you doing here? That matters. We'll come back to that. So I'm, I'm, I'm dead. Uh, four paramedics came. The, 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 the uh, state trooper, Texas state trooper who worked this accident, his name is Sven. And I know him very well. We've become friends. So Sven worked the accident. He said him when he approached the driver's side of the car and there were pieces of me on the road, he said it was the most horrific thing he'd ever seen in his entire life before or since. So it must have been bad, really bad, if he said that. Four paramedics came, four ambulances. There were four victims. Nobody else was hurt. Miracle, really. They were treated and released, so all of them worked on me, trying to revive me, resuscitate me. They were unsuccessful. I was pronounced dead on the scene. And because all the windows were knocked out, it's raining in the car. So they covered me up with a tarp so nobody would have to see me as they waited for the coroner to come and do the paperwork so I could be removed, probably for an autopsy. So... The steering wheel impaled me. I had internal injuries. My head was banged up against the side of the car, so I had blood coming out of my ears and eyes and nose, mouth. It was obvious I had brain damage. Even knows it's obvious that I had brain damage. So I, I was really badly hurt. The dashboard collapsed in my leg. My right leg was broken at the knee. It just kneecap disintegrated. Over here, I slid in the seat, and then the left leg... Uh, the dashboard came across just above my knee and uh, four and a half inches of femur was ejected from my leg and never found of uh, the weight of that truck coming down on my leg. I, I put my arm up. Obviously, I guess I was reacting and, and the, the, the weight and the, the speed of the truck took my arm into the back seat and from here forward was lying on the back seat of the car. So I was literally dismembered by this accident. And so they're waiting uh, for someone to come and take me away. Back behind me are all those preachers that came from the same conference I did, and they're trying to get home too, and they're not going anywhere now. The bridge is blocked. One of those pastors, who was uh, a pastor of First Baptist Church, Klein, up north of town where the old blimp base used to be, he, he was a speaker. He and his wife both spoke at the conference. They're behind me. They walk up onto the bridge. They see all this carnage. And Dick Onorecker, that was his name, decides to get in the car with me. This is a screen grab from the movie, 90 Minutes in Heaven. You could see him coming down. And this is the man who played Dick Onorecker. And his name is Raymond. So he's coming forward. And that's a portrayal of the state trooper, Sven. And uh, so Dick Onorecker truly believed that he heard the voice of God say, pray for the man in the red car even though he had been told by all these people, well, that guy is dead. 
I mean, you can do whatever you want to, but he's dead. Because he thought, God is telling me to do this. So he was obedient, which is what God is always interested in. So obediently, he gets permission to get in the car and he prays for me. Uh, He's under the tarp also, so we're both in the dark, even though it's the middle of the day. And he puts his hand on my shoulder from behind me, because he had to come in from the trunk of the car, and and he puts his hand on my shoulder. He is now praying for me, because God told him to. They've notified the church by this time. They've tracked down my family. Uh, Nicole was 12, the boys were seven, and uh, she was teaching uh, in school in, in Alvin. And the church, of course, was waiting for me to come in so I could do the prayer meeting that night. And so they're all uh, now aware of the fact I've been in a terrible accident. None of them were told on the phone that I was a fatality. They did not know that. So they're praying too. And they're calling everybody they can think of and they're praying. So this praying is going on worldwide in a very short period of time because this preacher is in a terrible wreck on his way to church. I'm very much unaware of it. I'm not here, absent from the body, present with the Lord. If I'd have known they were praying, I would have told them to stop. But they were all praying because they felt like that's what they should do, and of course it was. I mean, if you've been in heaven, you don't want to, you want to come back here. But uh, they're all praying, I'm gonna be all right. This goes on for an hour and a half, therefore 90 minutes in heaven. It happened at 11.45, 1.15 in the afternoon. That man is praying over my dead body in the car and he's singing, what a friend we have in Jesus. And suddenly without any warning, in that wreckage of the car over a wreckage of a body, I start singing the song with him. So he gets out of the car very fast, <laughs> which we all would. And he goes over to Officer Spin and says, the dead man is singing. And nobody believed that, but I was. I do remember singing with him. And that began the rest of my life because they had to get me out of that car. And that took some doing. You, you, know, you saw the earlier pictures where they had a saw roof. I mean, since pieces of me were missing and they were hanging, they had to get about eight guys under me to get me out of that car. Removing a living person is very different from removing someone who's not. To put me on a gurney, they took me to a series of hospitals because they couldn't handle my catastrophic injuries. They made a decision to transport me to the level one trauma center. The nearest one was in Houston, Herman Memorial Hospital. Helicopters couldn't fly that day. The weather was too bad. So they put me in an ambulance and drove me 75 miles down Interstate 45 to Herman Hospital. I had an accident at 11.45 in the morning. I arrived at Herman Hospital at 6.15 that night, six and a half hours after the wreck. I would be in a hospital bed from that moment forward for 13 months, and I would have 34 operations to put me back together again. So if we were preaching another sermon, I'd be talking about answered prayer because I believe God answers prayer. We'd be talking about miracles because I think God is still in the miracle business. We'd be talking about finding a new normal because we were never going to be the same after this. Never. I've been beaten up, but I'm not beaten. And then I usually talk about heaven, which is exactly what I'm going to do right now because that's the subject of the evening. Heaven. Heaven. Jesus said, our Father who art in heaven. So Jesus himself is acknowledging his ultimate destination, heaven, and he's acknowledging God the Father in heaven. Where is heaven? Up. Up. You know, Paul talks about three of them. Maybe we'll get around to talking about them next week, the three of them, but we'll at least talk about the heaven that God is in, the place where he dwells. 
Jesus said, I'm going, I'm returning, and I'm making a destination for you. When he said, I go to prepare a place for you. John 14, very familiar verses to many. Jesus is in the upper room. And incidentally, there's a metaphor here that, that often is not gotten. Jesus had sent some people ahead to prepare the upper room for the supper that we were gonna have, which we now refer to as the Last Supper. One of these days, you're gonna have one. You just don't know when it is. Well, he knew this was the Last Supper, and he's sending someone to prepare the places. Often, Jesus is sending people ahead. And it's, a, it's really an example of what he's doing now. I go to prepare a place for you. So that not only happened right before he said this, but it's happening now on our part. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I do, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you will be also. One of the best things about heaven, if not the very best thing, is that God and Jesus are there. It's their place. We get to be with them, with them. Talk about Revelation 21 next week. With God, you'll be with God, with God, with God. But Jesus is saying it now, I'll be with you. And you know where I'm going, he said, and you know how to get there. Thomas didn't. I don't know whether he hadn't been paying attention or he just was a questioner. You know, most groups are somebody who just likes to ask questions. He might've been that guy. But Thomas got answers. I think that's how you find out stuff. You ask questions. We don't know where you're going. How do we get there? And Jesus responds with these crystal clear clarion words that transcend the history. You want to know how to go to heaven? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes into the Father except through me. So he's gone to prepare a place for us. What is the place like? Who gets to go? Is it as awesome as they say it is? I think it is. The Bible talks about heaven in a lot of different contexts. And I think the reason for that is because it wants us to get as clearly as we can down here on earth an idea of what it's like. In one place, uh, heaven is called a country, a whole other country, indicating that heaven is a vast place. It's a large place. It's a country. Another place, it's a city, which means that inhabitants live there. You know, we live there in the city. We're inhabitants of the city of God. And it calls it a kingdom, indicating that someone is in charge of all this stuff. Someone is ruling over all of it. And we know who that is, the king of kings. A couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, we talked about the thief on the cross who was told he was going to paradise, a place of beauty, desirability, awesome, gorgeous, incredible, almost indescribable beauty. But it's called my father's house, and my father's house, it's another way of saying my home, in my home, in your home. Home is a place where you can make yourself at home. It's, it's a place where you can kick off your shoes, where you can do some thinking, where you're always accepted, where you're loved. You're not a guest. You're a resident. You live there. It's home. Jesus said, I'm going to take you to my father's house, and it will be your home. A home. See, there's that notion. In those days, when a son got married, the family would build a room onto the side of the house. 
And they would live there. The new family would live there. And same next time and next time. So the houses just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And the notion here is that in my father's house are many rooms or mansions. And everybody gets one. Everybody gets one. Jesus is preparing a place for us. And it's home. Yeah, the world doesn't really understand the context of this when Jesus said, I'm building you a place. It's your place. There won't be any heartache, heartache there. There won't be any loneliness. There won't be any depression. There won't be any sadness. There won't be any sickness. There won't be any death. Guys, we can show that picture now. This is pretty gruesome. But I developed double pneumonia and um, was given up for death again. Poor Eva had to make some really, really tough decisions on the spur of the moment. You can see where my right leg was broken. Uh, since I lost all that bone in the left leg, they decided to do an experimental treatment that had never been done before in this country involving stainless steel halos with rods that go through you and out the other side. And they broke the leg in another place. Then they turned screws on those halos four times a day to try to stretch the bones inside to close the gaps where the bones were missing. The left arm there has transplanted bones from my right pelvis. They moved bones from my hip and they put them in my arm. The skin on that arm came from that leg where you could see they took it off. Medical people have a wonderful knack for finding things you didn't even hurt and hurt that for you to fix the other stuff. So this is the way I lived. That was my home. This is my home for uh, a year, just like that. That's why when the scripture says there's no heartache or loneliness, or depression, or sadness, or sickness, or death, or pain, that means something to me. And I'm not the only one. There are many more people who have been through much more than I have, have been hurt, badly hurt, badly broken. And I understand that. Dave Galloway tells the story of a young man who came home from Vietnam. It was Christmas time. His parents were very wealthy, well-to-do people. And they were getting ready to go out for a series of Christmas parties for the Christmas season. Just then the phone rang. It was their son. Mom, he said, I'm back in the States. I just got out. Oh, that's wonderful news, she said. Son, uh, will you be home for Christmas? Can you get here in time? We're celebrating. We're having parties all over the place. Everybody will love to see you. Yes, I can be home for Christmas, but I need to ask you something first. What is it? She said. Well, I have a friend with me from Vietnam. Can he come home? Well, of course, she said. Bring him home. He'll enjoy all the celebrations and parties too. Well, wait a minute, Mom. I need to explain something about him. He was terribly wounded. He lost both legs and an arm. His face is disfigured too. See, before the accident, I looked like Robert Redford, and this is what I look like now. No. This young man's face was disfigured. Well, there was silence on the phone at that. And the mother said, well, that, that's all right. It's okay. Uh, br bring him home for a few days. Mom, Mom, you don't understand. He, uh, he's got nowhere to go. He has no one else. I want to bring him to our home and let him live here and make it his home. That was quiet on the other end of the phone again. Son, you, 
that just, I just don't think that'll work. What you're asking for us to do is really kind of unfair to us. Well, it, it would disrupt our lives for sure. I'm sure there are government agencies that would be more than glad to take charge of him. Look, look, you just hurry on home right now for Christmas and then, then maybe you can go visit him every now and then. That's a good idea. Darling, I'm sorry. I, we're, I'm, you know, your dad's out in the car right now waiting for me. We're trying to get to this party so we won't be late. Call, call again as soon as you know what you're going to do and when you'll be home. Bye. Parents went to the party. And when they got home, there was an urgent message from the California police asking them to call. They telephoned. And the officer said, I'm very sorry to have to tell you this. But we just found the body of a soldier in a hotel room. His face is disfigured. He's missing two legs and an arm. And from the identification on the body, he appears to be your son. Heaven? That would never happen. God specializes in taking people who have been through long, dark nights and terrible situations and cancer, and losses, and everything that you've endured. None of that's in heaven, it's all gone. When I got to the gates, I was standing in front of Pearl. I was listening to angels. I was experiencing the light there that is so bright, earthly eyes could not stand it. It was just that brilliant. Can you die and really come back? I mean, is it possible that to happen here? I didn't really think so. I'd heard people tell fanciful stories about it, but I didn't really think that was possible. Really, can you die and come back? Well, the Bible's filled with examples like that. The widow of Zarephath's son was brought back in 1 Kings. The Shumanite woman's son was brought back in 2 Kings. The Moabite, the dead Moabite, was thrown into Elijah's tomb, a cave, and as soon as he got in there, the soldier came back out alive. The widow of Nain's son was in his own funeral procession when he came back to life. We know about Jairus' daughter. We talked about Lazarus just a couple of weeks ago. The saints in Jerusalem were resurrected. They came out of the graves at the crucifixion of Jesus. They were seen around the city walking around. We don't know how many, but they were seen walking around. Tabitha, Dorcas in Greek, died in Joppa. She came back. How about Eutychus of Troas? Fell out of a window while Paul was preaching and Paul went over and raised him from the dead. Bible's filled with situations like that. I mean, it happened to me and it was unbelievable. Heaven is a literal place. C.S. Lewis said, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think about heaven that they have been ineffective in this world. I would agree with him. The problem is too many Christians don't think about heaven, and they do, they don't think about it very accurately based on what the Bible says. They get fanciful ideas. So, we recognize each other in heaven. Everybody I saw there, I knew. I didn't see anybody I didn't know. Why is that? Were there not people in there that I didn't know? Well, first of all, in heaven, I think you know everybody. I think you will just know as you are known, as it says in 1 Corinthians. We will be known there. There are no introductions, in my opinion, in heaven. 
The Bible is filled with illustrations where Moses and Elijah appeared to people and they didn't know who they were, but they knew who they were. And they laid eyes on them. Same thing happened. And King Saul recognized Samuel after he came back. Both Moses and Elijah remained distinct persons. They had not lost their identity when they appeared to people here. When David's son died, as I mentioned last week, he said, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Indicating in David's mind, he's going to see his son and he'll know him. Not just some, some faceless, some nameless, some indiscriminate person. No, he'll know him. Jesus was recognized after the resurrection. Stands the reason that we'll be recognized when we go to heaven, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, I shall know just as I am known. I believe we know each other, and I knew these people. The first thing I saw when I got to heaven is these people. These are only a small group of them, but I showed you one last week, I think. This is my grandfather, Joe Sox. He's the first person I saw at the gates of heaven. He was standing right in the middle of this crowd, uh, I didn't go down a long tunnel. There wasn't a bright light at the end of the tunnel. I was killed instantly. I arrived instantly. There was no sense of passing, like it often is for most people where they're passing away. I did not pass away. I was killed instantly. I'm standing there in front of him. What's he wearing? Not that. He's wearing a long, iridescent robe. It was quite spectacular, which really, if you knew him here on earth, you'd probably think, why did he put that on? Because everybody does. We all do. Papa was missing fingers on both hands. Uh, years of hard labor. I mean, really, really hard work, hard labor. Dangerous work. So he extended his hands to me when I saw him. I was with him when he died. I rode in the ambulance with him when he died. He was, well, I was hardly ever closer to a human being than I was to him. And when he died, oh my goodness, standing outside that hospital room, when the doctor came out and said, I'm sorry, we did everything we could. The words no one ever wants to hear. We did everything we could, but we, we, we lost him. Got a lot of broken bones here, but I, nothing hurts like a broken heart. Papa died, it broke my heart. Now I'm standing in front of him at the gates of heaven. He's extended his arms to me. He's speaking a language I've never heard before, but fully understood at the moment when he said, welcome home, Donnie. That's his name for me. Nobody else called me that here on the planet. And I looked down at the hands that used to hold me when I was a little boy, and the fingers I had never seen before were clearly there. He looked real good. I think if you want to go to heaven, you're going to look real good. You just are. I mean, you look nice now, but I mean, you're really going to look good there. You'll be perfect. You know, you'll be the way God wanted you to be when he created you in the first place, before time and circumstances have taken their toll on you. You'll look good. Everybody did. Next person. This is... Sue Bell Guyton. She was my roommate in college's mother. She was one of the most influential people I ever knew. Her husband, husband was killed in a car wreck when Daryl and I were in college. Daryl sat right down here just the other day at Nicole's funeral, driving down from Bossier City. He and Karen, right down there. That's how much he they care about us. This is his mother. She was, a high, she was an elementary school dietitian. She was always dressed in white. One of the best cooks I've ever known in my life. One of the greatest sages of our time. She raised four children by herself after her husband died while we were in college, Daryl and I, and uh, 
She meant so much to me. She was so influential to me in my spiritual walk. She had so much to do with how I turned out, without a question. She met me at the gates of heaven. Why? She deserved to be there. She helped me get there. They all did. Another picture. This is Charlotte James. It's my high school speech teacher. If I have any gifts whatsoever in communicating, this lady had a lot to do with it. But not only did she teach us in school, but in those days, it was a lot less black and white than it is now. We would do plays together. We would do all kinds of things. She was so interested in my spiritual development because I got saved in high school. And she was always asking me about it, when I was going to get baptized. And she encouraged me and she taught me to communicate. She told me that your speech begins the moment you leave your chair to walk up to the platform. Never forgotten that because it does. People are watching you already. They want to know whether you're confident or not about what you're going to say. Charlotte Jane's had such a profound effect on me as a teacher in school, but as a spiritual witness. Charlotte Jane's was killed in a car wreck with three other teachers on her way to a wedding by a drunk driver. The lady before, Sue Guyton, died of, what's the disease, Eva? Encephalitis. She got it at school and died a long time ago. This is Charlotte. Chains. Next picture. Jan Cowart. Jan Cowart was one of the girls who came to my house when I was 15 years old with a boy and another girl to visit me and invite me to come to church. They were just out visiting. I don't know how they got my name. I never knew. But she came to visit me. She went to my school. The other two went to another rival high school. Jan and I ended up actually dating she was the editor of the school newspaper. She was the most devoted Christian I could have ever possibly have imagined. She was so influential in me making the decision to follow Jesus. And, uh, and so much of it had to do with just the way she lived her life and how, how deeply in love with Jesus she was. She was a type one diabetic. She took insulin. Our relationship began to kind of well, the romantic part of it kind of drifted away, but the friendship never did. And she, boy, if I would get into trouble in college or do something, I'd hear from her about how much she was praying for me and, and if she, I've ever needed to talk, give her a call. She just helped channel my spiritual existence. And then she died of diabetes. Last picture, I think. Mike Wood was in our graduating class. He look, he's about as uh, healthy as he looks. He was uh, about a six foot four, oh, right around 200 pound uh, tight end, a four-star letterman at Bossier High School. He also played on the state championship basketball team. He lettered in four sports in addition to making really good grades. He was just unbelievable. And you know what? He was my friend. He liked me anyway. I didn't do any of that stuff. He was in my Sunday school class at First Baptist Church before I became a Christian. I can still remember him reading scriptures as we went around the circle with great confidence and that deep voice that he had. And then summer after we graduated, a truck ran over him and killed him. I remember his funeral like it was yesterday. Mike greeted me at the gates of heaven. He helped me get there. They all did. What does that mean? 
It means we're still here to help everyone else get there. And we have much work to do. The people who greeted me at the gates of heaven were the people who helped me get there. Praise God for that. See, most of what, most of me, honestly, is already in heaven. It's already there. My name is written there. My citizenship is there. God is there. My Savior is there. My inheritance is there. My rewards are there. My friends and family are there. And if you're a follower of Jesus, authentically, yours are there too. Because that's my home. This is not our home. Our corruption will be replaced by incorruption. And our mortality will be replaced by immortality. So, I'm walking in, surrounded by these people. We're embracing, we're talking, we're expressing love because that's all there was. It's just pure, adulterated, 100% love. Angels are hovering about us. Certainly, they were in the car with me. One held my hand the whole time I was in there. I know because I, when, I came, when I came back, I was holding that hand. How do you know it was just, there was no one else in the car? Dick was behind me. He couldn't have possibly reached that hand. God sent an angel. But they are the ones who bear us up and they bore me up to heaven immediately. They're surrounding me. I could not only hear their voices, I could hear their wings. I mean, I grew up in the country. You walk out of the woods or a meadow and you flush out a covey of birds, that sound that only comes from wings, you hear it all over heaven. The wings of angels, many kinds of angels. We don't become angels in heaven. They're another another degree of creatures altogether apart from us for a different purpose. So they minister to us and they were ministering to me in heaven, welcoming me. But then I saw the gate, like the inside of an oyster, a magnificent building. We'll talk about the dimensions next week about how incredibly large heaven is to hold all these people. And the entrance is small, just Big enough for like one person at a time. Why such a magnificent gate? Well, it's heaven. Do the gates ever close? No, they never close. They're always open. These places in medieval times and in Bible times, they had gates to keep people out. In heaven, the gates never close. They're waiting for you. So they're open. I could see through the gate. Next week, we'll talk about what's inside. But I'm at the gate now, and I'm passing these people who love me. I'm surrounded by angels. The brilliance of the light reflecting off the gate is almost blinding. God is light. Jesus is light, and you're basking in the glow of God Almighty at the gates of heaven. And so, I heard the music. If you like music, (laughs) you're going to love heaven. They got great music up there. I mean, all of it's for God. He alone is worthy of our worship. And they're all worshiping him. Instruments, voices, thousands of songs at the same time without chaos. What? How's that possible? It's heaven. You could distinguish each one of them with your heavenly ears. Oh, the, the sounds of heaven. The glorious sounds. Heaven is a buffet for the senses. It's a sensory explosion. It's simply the most real thing I have ever experienced in my existence. And I've been through some pretty real stuff. I have. Can't wait to go back there. Fanny Crosby wrote 6,000 hymns. 6,000 hymns. Most of you know that she was blind at the age of six weeks. Preacher approached Fanny and said, 
I think it's a great pity that the master, God Almighty, didn't give you sight when he showered you with all these other gifts that you have. Oh no, she said. Don't you know that at birth, if I had been given that one position, it would have been to be born blind all over again. What? Said the preacher. Because when I get to heaven, she said, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be the sight of my Savior. She wrote a hymn that she never published until the very end of her life. And she lived to be 95. She was at a conference one time and she was asked to give her testimony. And so she did. And at the end of her testimony, she quoted that song which she had never shared with anyone else. Someday the silver cord will break and I no more as now shall sing. But oh, the joy when I shall wake within the palace of the king. And I shall see his face and tell the sorry, saved by grace. And so shall we all if we've embraced Christ. Heaven's simply the most real thing I've ever experienced in my life. I don't recommend getting hit by a truck so you can have a good testimony. But you know, whatever happens to you, it's not what happens to you. It's how you respond. It's what you do with it. And here's what God wants you to do with whatever circumstances you're going through now. Put it on the doorstep of heaven, the front porch of heaven, the gates, the 12 gates. Yes, 12 gates. And give your heart to Jesus. So, I'm inviting you to do that tonight. I told you up front that we were gonna try to get people into heaven, talk about it and try to get people in. Such a glorious experience, except time is ticking. You know that. We don't get to stay here. You know that. I was a 38-year-old man on his way to church. One Wednesday morning, when a truck killed me. Are you ready? If something were to happen to you tonight, God forbid, on the way home from church, would you be ready? Well, this may not be a typical Wednesday night service, but I want to make it urgent for you. If you're watching, especially to give your heart to Jesus. And so in a moment, I'm gonna have a prayer and, and I'll have two objectives in the prayer. So you can listen closely and here they are. If you never trusted the Lord as your savior, tonight would be the best night ever to do it. Because you don't have any guarantee of any more nights. You don't. So I'm encouraging you to do that. Trust Christ. In, admit that you're a sinner because you know you are. We all are. And ask forgiveness because that's why Jesus died on the cross in the first place. And then claim heaven. I believe in you. I know who you are. I know you died for me. I am not just sorry for my sins. I repent. I'm going to turn and go in a different direction from now on. And I want to live for you from this moment forward. And he'll take you. And one day we'll all see you at the gates. If you are a believer, then there's got to be some people that you know who are not ready to go to heaven. You know who they are. You know what they need. They need a word from you. You need to bring them to church on Sundays. You need to get them a Bible. You need to tell them about Jesus. You need to live a Christian life in front of them so they know what one is. You need to love them into the kingdom of God. Because I know you love them here. Don't you want to love them there? 
God help you, help them know him. That's gonna be our prayer tonight. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. What a privilege it is to stand here and talk about something that I experienced in some ways so long ago, and yet it's just as fresh now as it was the moment it happened. I'm praying for everybody in the room. I'm praying for people who really are in doubt about their eternal salvation. The Bible says we can know that we are saved, and you want us to. And if someone here is is not sure, just right now in this moment, just confess that there's uncertainty in their hearts, and they want certainty. They want to exchange the questions for answers, and that answer is Jesus, always Jesus. Lord, as heads are bowed, I'm just asking all of us to to search our hearts and ask the question, if we were to die tonight, is heaven our destination? Are we sure? If you're not sure, just ask Jesus into your heart right now, right where you are. We're going to do like we do on Sunday mornings. If, If that's you, if you just ask Christ into your heart and said, Jesus, I believe in you. I I know you died for my sins and I am a sinner. Please forgive me and come into my heart and save me and I dedicate my life to you from now on. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If that's you, quietness of the moment, would you just stand right where you are? If you made that decision tonight. Anyone? Upstairs, across the place. I know we have a devoted group on Wednesday nights. I understand that. But I don't want to miss the chance that somebody here may not may not be ready for heaven. That's you, Sam. Or you see the hearts of the people, you know what's really in there, whether we stand or not. So I just pray for everyone here for certainty and surety and assurance that salvation is ours. Now that we are, I'm praying, Lord, that we will be about your business. We must be about our Father's business. And that is telling other people about Jesus, inviting them to church, helping them get into the kingdom of God so we can spend eternity with them. Either we'll meet them at the gates or they'll meet us. That's the way it works. Thank you, Lord, for this church and its witness and all the people who gravitate here, no matter where they come from. We just pray a blessing. We pray the message will always be crystal clear. And we pray that you will be praised for you alone are worthy of our worship. Thank you, Lord, for heaven. We just can't wait to get there. Be with us until that day. In Jesus' name, amen.